This is day 44 of our daily Bible reading. Today we will read Deuteronomy chapters 20 through 23 and Psalm 44. Lord God, we are honored to be in your presence today. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us the freedom to come and worship you. You have called us into a glorious purpose, Lord, and we have barely begun to scratch the surface of it. Help us to appreciate the finer things in life, the day-to-day victories, the beauty of your creation, the wondrous intricacies of your universe. Help us to appreciate the small things, Lord, on top of all the blessings you've given us. And help us to appreciate the people that are in our lives. Because the reality that we often forget is that you have ordained the days of our lives. You have brought us into this world. You have brought us this far. Everything in our life has occurred by your doing. And we have a glorious future awaiting us. You have reserved works for us to do. And you want to know us on a deeply personal level. You have condescended so far from your throne to interact with us as specks upon specks upon specks in this universe. And we are not worthy. But thank you, Lord, for doing it anyway. Please bless the reading of your word. May your spirit teach us today. In Jesus' name, amen. When you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, who brought you up from the land of Egypt, is with you. When you are approaching the battle, the priest shall come near and speak to the people. He shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, you are approaching the battle against your enemies today. Do not be faint-hearted. Do not be afraid or panic or tremble before them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to save you. The officers also shall speak to the people, saying, Who is the man that has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him depart and return to his house. Otherwise he might die in the battle, and another man would dedicate it. Who is the man that has planted a vineyard and has not begun to use its fruit? Let him depart and return to his house. Otherwise, he might die in the battle, and another man would begin to use its fruit. And who is the man that is engaged to a woman and has not married her? Let him depart and return to his house. Otherwise, he might die in the battle, and another man would marry her. Then the officers shall speak further to the people and say, Who is the man that is afraid and faint-hearted? Let him depart and return to his house, so that he might not make his brother's hearts melt like his heart. When the officers have finished speaking to the people, they shall appoint commanders of armies at the head of the people. When you approach a city to fight against it, you shall offer it terms of peace. If it agrees to make peace with you and opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall become your forced labor and shall serve you. However, if it does not make peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. 
When the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall strike all the men in it with the edge of the sword. Only the women and the children and the animals and all that is in the city, all its spoil, you shall take as booty for yourself. And you shall use the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not of the cities of these nations nearby. Only in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, you shall not leave alive anything that breathes. But you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite and the Amorite, the Canaanite and the Perizzite, the Hivite and the Jebusite, as the Lord your God has commanded you so that they may not teach you to do according to all their detestable things which they have done for their gods, so that you would sin against the Lord your God. When you besiege a city a long time to make war against it in order to capture it, you shall not destroy its trees by swinging an axe against them, for you may eat from them, and you shall not cut them down. For is the tree of the field a man, that it should be besieged by you? Only the trees which you know are not fruit trees you shall destroy and cut down, that you may construct siege works against the city that is making war with you until it falls. If a slain person is found lying in the open country, in the land which the Lord your God gives you to possess, and it is not known who has struck him, Then your elders and your judges shall go out and measure the distance to the cities which are around the slain one. It shall be that the city which is nearest to the slain man, that is, the elders of that city, shall take a heifer of the herd, which has not been worked and which has not pulled in a yoke, and the elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a valley with running water, which has not been plowed or sown and shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. Then the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come near, for the Lord your God has chosen them to serve him and to bless in the name of the Lord. And every dispute and every assault shall be settled by them. All the elders of that city, which is nearest to the slain man, shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley. And they shall answer, and say, Our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it. Forgive your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, O Lord, and do not place the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people Israel. And the blood guiltiness shall be forgiven them. So you shall remove the guilt of innocent blood from your midst, when you do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. When you go out to battle against your enemies, and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands, and you take them away captive, and see among the captives a beautiful woman, and have a desire for her, and would take her as a wife for yourself, then you shall bring her home to your house, and she shall shave her head and trim her nails. She shall also remove the clothes of her captivity, and shall remain in your house and mourn her father and mother a full month. And after that, you may go into her 
and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. It shall be, if you are not pleased with her, then you shall let her go wherever she wishes. But you shall certainly not sell her for money. You shall not mistreat her, because you have humbled her. If a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him sons, if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, then it shall be in the day he wills what he has to his sons. He cannot make the son of the loved the firstborn before the son of the unloved, who is the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the beginning of his strength. To him belongs the right of the firstborn. If any man has a stubborn and rebellious son, who will not obey his father or his mother, and when they chastise him, he will not even listen to them, then his father and mother shall seize him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gateway of his hometown. They shall say to the elders of his city, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his city shall stone him to death. So you shall remove the evil from your midst, and all Israel will hear of it and fear. If a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged is accursed of God, so that you do not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. You shall not see your countryman's ox or his sheep straying away and pay no attention to them. You shall certainly bring them back to your countrymen. If your countryman is not near you, or if you do not know him, then you shall bring it home to your house, and it shall remain with you until your countryman looks for it. Then you shall restore it to him. Thus you shall do with his donkey, and you shall do the same with his garment, and you shall do likewise with anything lost by your countrymen, which he has lost and you have found. You are not allowed to neglect them. You shall not see your countryman's donkey or his ox fallen down on the way and pay no attention to them. You shall certainly help him to raise them up. A woman shall not wear man's clothing, nor shall a man put on a woman's clothing. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. If you happen to come across a bird's nest along the way, in any tree or on the ground, with young ones or eggs, and the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall certainly let the mother go, but the young you may take for yourself, in order that it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, so that you will not bring blood guilt on your house if anyone falls from it.
You shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, or all the produce of the seed which you have sown in the increase of the vineyard will become defiled. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. You shall not wear a material mixed of wool and linen together. You shall make for yourself tassels on the four corners of your garment with which you cover yourself. If any man takes a wife and goes into her and then turns against her and charges her with shameful deeds and publicly defames her and says, I took this woman, but when I came near her, I did not find her a virgin. Then the girl's father and her mother shall take and bring out the evidence of the girl's virginity to the elders of the city at the gate. The girl's father shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man for a wife, but he turned against her. And behold, he has charged her with shameful deeds, saying, I did not find your daughter a virgin. But this is the evidence of my daughter's virginity. And they shall spread the garment before the elders of the city. So the elders of that city shall take the man and chastise him. And they shall find him a hundred shekels of silver and give it to the girl's father, because he publicly defamed a virgin of Israel. And she shall remain his wife. He cannot divorce her all his days. But if this charge is true, that the girl was not found a virgin, then they shall bring out the girl to the doorway of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her to death, because she has committed an act of folly in Israel by playing the harlot in her father's house. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. If a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. Thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. If there is a girl who is a virgin engaged to a man, and another man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death. The girl, because she did not cry out in the city, and the man, because he has violated his neighbor's wife. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. But if in the field the man finds the girl who is engaged, and the man forces her and lies with her, then only the man who lies with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the girl. There is no sin in the girl worthy of death. For just as a man rises against his neighbor and murders him, so is this case. When he found her in the field, the engaged girl cried out, but there was no one to save her. If a man finds a girl who is a virgin, who is not engaged, and seizes her and lies with her, and they are discovered, then the man who lay with her shall give to the girl's father fifty shekels of silver, and she shall become his wife because he has violated her. He cannot divorce her all his days. A man shall not take his father's wife so that he will not uncover his father's skirt. No one who is emasculated or has his male organ cut off 
shall enter the assembly of the Lord. No one of illegitimate birth shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of his descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall enter the assembly of the Lord. No Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Because they did not meet you with food and water on the way when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. Nevertheless, the Lord your God was not willing to listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. You shall never seek their peace or their prosperity all your days. You shall not detest an Edomite, for he is your brother. You shall not detest an Egyptian, because you were an alien in his land. The sons of the third generation who are born to them may enter the assembly of the Lord. When you go out as an army against your enemies, you shall keep yourself from every evil thing. If there is among you any man who is unclean because of a nocturnal emission, then he must go outside the camp. He may not re-enter the camp. But it shall be when evening approaches, he shall bathe himself with water, and at sundown he may re-enter the camp. You shall also have a place outside the camp and go out there and you shall have a spade among your tools. And it shall be, when you sit down outside, you shall dig with it, and shall turn to cover up your excrement. Since the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to defeat your enemies before you, therefore your camp must be holy. And he must not see anything indecent among you, or he will turn away from you. You shall not hand over to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall live with you in your midst, in the place which he shall choose in one of your towns where it pleases him. You shall not mistreat him. None of the daughters of Israel shall be a cult prostitute, nor shall any of the sons of Israel be a cult prostitute. You shall not bring the hire of a harlot or the wages of a dog, into the house of the Lord your God for any votive offering. For both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. You shall not charge interest to your countrymen, interest on money, food, or anything that may be loaned at interest. You may charge interest to a foreigner, but to your countrymen you shall not charge interest, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land which you are about to enter to possess. When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for it would be sin in you, and the Lord your God will surely require it of you. However, if you refrain from vowing, it would not be sin in you. You shall be careful to perform what goes out from your lips just as you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised. When you enter your neighbor's vineyard 
and you may eat grapes until you are fully satisfied, but you shall not put any in your basket. When you enter your neighbor's standing grain, then you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not wield a sickle in your neighbor's standing grain. Psalm 44 For the Choir Director A Masculine of the Sons of Korah O God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us the work that you did in their days, in the days of old. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations. Then you planted them. You afflicted the peoples. Then you spread them abroad. For by their own sword they did not possess the land, and their own arm did not save them. But your right hand and your arm and the light of your presence, for you favored them. You are my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. Through you we will push back our adversaries. Through your name we will trample down those who rise up against us. For I will not trust in my bow, nor will my sword save me. But you have saved us from our adversaries, and you have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted all day long, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Selah. Yet you have rejected us, and brought us to dishonor, and do not go out with our armies. You cause us to turn back from the adversary, and those who hate us have taken spoil for themselves. You give us as sheep to be eaten, and have scattered us among the nations. You sell your people cheaply, and have not profited by their sale. You make us a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and a derision to those around us. You make us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my dishonor is before me, and my humiliation has overwhelmed me, because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles, because of the presence of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you and we have not dealt falsely with your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, and our steps have not deviated from your way. Yet you have crushed us in a place of jackals, and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God, or extended our hands to a strange God, would not God find this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. But for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Arise yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul has sunk down into the dust. Our body cleaves to the earth. Rise up. Be our help, and redeem us for the sake of your loving kindness. Okay, there was a lot that was covered in these four chapters of Deuteronomy, so I'm not going to go through everything we read, but I'm going to highlight some of the important laws that we either need to re-emphasize 
or some new insights into those laws. So beginning in chapter 20, we have the whole chapter dedicated to warfare. Now, in the eyes of God, participating in war is not murder. And let's be clear about that. Because, again, murder is a heart condition. It is a manner of hatred towards someone without cause. In this case, for example, if you have a zeal for God's house, and you are fighting for the protection of God's house and for his righteousness, then that's a whole different thing. And oftentimes, people are conscripted into war, or they are drafted into war. It is not a choice that they made. And so those people are not committing murder voluntarily. They are being told to do this, and they have to follow instructions. So to be clear, the act of being a warrior in battle is not necessarily murder, okay? We have to understand that, because that would mean that every military person that has ever existed is a mass murderer. Everyone today who served or is serving in our armed forces is a murderer. And that's simply just not true. God looks at the heart, and he understands that there is a time for peace and that there is a time for war. And there are proper ways to do it. And personally, I like God's criteria for people who are qualified to go into battle. Because the first thing they do is they ask, did anyone just buy a new house? If you have, then go home and enjoy your new house. It's not time for you to go to war and lose everything. Are you a newlywed or are you engaged to get married? Go spend time with your woman. Go take care of that first. And then after some time, once everything has settled down, then you'll be qualified to join the battle. Did you just buy some property? Are you about to harvest all your produce? Well, then maybe this is not the time for you to go to battle. And they don't do that today. I think this is a wonderful criteria. I'm sure there's going to be people that will try to weasel their way out of it, but I like how God gives people a way out if they are not fully invested in the battle. And he explains why. Because it says at the end of this paragraph that you need to let these people leave because they will cause their brother's hearts to melt like his heart. Whatever is holding these people back from giving their best, putting their life on the line for God, they're going to cause that to be infectious with other people. They're going to cause doubts to come in. They're going to cause increased fear. And it's not going to be good for the general military. And I also appreciate the very last thing that these officers are supposed to ask. Is anyone scared? Is anyone afraid to go to battle? If you are, you need to get off the battlefield because you are either going to drag us down, you're going to be a liability to us, or you're going to cause more people to end up like you. And so you need to get out of here before you do more damage. I like this, and I really wish they adopted this policy today. And notice that the criteria for warfare at God's command is that the first thing you should do is offer peace. God doesn't want us to go straight into battle and just destroy everybody. He wants peace to be established on the earth between nation and nation. 
The only exceptions are the ones that are in Canaan, because those ones need to be completely wiped out at God's command, because they are going to corrupt Israel. And so they need to be utterly wiped out. Chapter 21 talks about manslaughter. If you happen to go out into a field and you see a dead body, you don't know how it got there, you don't know who killed it, it's what we would call today a cold case. They didn't have forensics back then. They didn't have DNA tests. And so oftentimes, if they found a body dumped in a field somewhere, it was highly unlikely that they were going to ever find out who actually did it. Maybe over the course of time they would, but more often than not, they wouldn't. And so what they would do is they would take this heifer that had never been used for plowing before, and they would use it as a sacrifice for forgiving the sins of Israel, for allowing a murderer to exist in their midst, and forgiving the innocent people. And the Levites were responsible to do that. When you get to verse 10 through 13, it talks about how if you conquer a people, and you take the women, the children, and the treasures for yourselves, that you could marry a woman who is a captive from another land. There is a process that needs to be followed here, but let's be clear that this exception only applies to the people outside of Canaan. Like it says, it's talking about a nation that is far away. It's not talking about the Canaanites here. The Canaanites are not supposed to intermix with Israel, but the other ones are fair game in this way. When I read verse 15, it reminded me of Jacob, because it described Jacob in this exact way. If a man has two wives, at least at one point he had two wives, he loved one and the other was unloved, right? From the very beginning, he never loved Leah, and yet Leah was the bearer of his firstborn. Rachel was always his favorite wife. That was the one he originally wanted, and only her. But then, over the course of time, you know, there is that deception from Laban, where he ended up going into Leah, and each of the ladies ended up giving their maid to Jacob as a wife as well, and things got way out of hand. But through them, the 12 tribes of Israel were allowed to exist. So God still used that sinful situation for ultimate good. But God's design has always been one man and one woman forever in marriage. There will be people who will challenge this ideology because they'll say, well, the biblical definition of marriage with all these famous people is that, well, you have Abraham, right? He had his wife and then he had the concubine. So he's allowed to have a girl on the side there for a weekend. Or Jacob, polygamy was okay. David, polygamy was okay. Solomon, polygamy was okay. But let's be clear that the Bible is not saying that was acceptable. The Bible is merely being very transparent about what these people did. Never do you see God approve of these things. Jesus is the one who sets the record straight, even though it was stated in the Garden of Eden. A man departs from his mother and father and cleaves to his wife, and the two become one flesh. What God has joined together, 
Let no man separate. That is the biblical definition of marriage from the mouth of our Savior. And so God is not saying this is okay. He's not saying polygamy is acceptable, but he knows that people are going to do it anyway. And so he is going to set some guidelines for if this happens, this is what you can do. Verse 18, when I first read it at a glance, I was worried because it says that if you have a rebellious and stubborn son who will not obey his parents, then you're supposed to stone them to death. That's pretty serious. Honoring your mother and father is one of the Ten Commandments, one of the chief rules that you are to follow. But to go so far as to stone your own children for being disobedient? That places a lot of responsibility on the parents. For one, knowing that that is a possibility, that if you fail to be a good parent, you could create a child like this, and you'd have to pay the consequence of it and kill your own child. But bear in mind, this is not the same thing as having a little kid who's being naughty, okay? For example, I have a five-year-old, and he is very difficult, and he is described very similarly to this man. He is stubborn. He is rebellious. He does not obey us, and he doesn't listen to us half the time. He has his moments, but he is a very challenging kid. Never in my wildest dreams would I ever think I would have to stone him to death. But if you look later on in the understanding of what is being said here, in verse 20, they go to the elders of the city and say, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He is a glutton and a drunkard. He is an adult. Okay, so this is talking about some child of yours that is an adult. Completely different understanding than having a disrespectful, disobedient five-year-old, for example. Now, verses 22 and 23, these ones are messianic in nature. Look what it says. If a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree. So often when we talk about Jesus being hung on a cross, he's often described as being hung on a tree. It says that his corpse is not to hang all night long and that you are to bury him on the same day, for he who is hanged is accursed of God. That's why often at church today, when you sing the songs, it says that he became a curse for us. It is because of this. Cursed is he who hangs on a tree. So yes, Jesus did become the curse for us so that he could save us. And talk about biblical fulfillment here. Jesus didn't hang on the cross more than a day. They took him down the same day, and he was buried, just like the law of Moses would require. I thought that was a very cool detail here at the end of the chapter. But praise God that the curse that Jesus put upon himself died with him. When he arose three days later, the curse was no longer in effect. That curse is permanently gone. That is why we are able to enjoy eternal life and righteousness through Jesus Christ our Lord. Praise God. Praise God. Chapter 22 and 23 start going through various laws that we have seen before in some fashion 
but there are a few that might be new to us. But overall, they are simply just laws that the people needed to follow. There are a couple, though, that apply to us that we definitely need to consider. Verse 5. A woman shall not wear man's clothing, nor shall a man put on a woman's clothing, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. I personally think this is still in effect today. God never changes, so his law never changes. For a woman to pretend to be a man and a man to pretend to be a woman, it is disgusting to him. So that just throws all this nonsense that is going on out the window if we just start right there. Did you also notice that through many of these laws that it ends on the same note? Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. That is why these laws existed. They're there to purge the evil out of the nation. That is why laws exist, at least the ones that are supposed to be for our good. If they are grounded in true godly morality, they are to preserve us. They are to maintain order and to promote godliness. They're not just to burden people down with rules. And that's why God has these rules in effect, so that there should be no evil in our midst. It is a means of controlling the chaos. In psychology, there's that eternal battle between chaos and order, and yet somehow together there is a sense of harmony between the two. They coexist together. And in a sense, you can relate it to this, in how in the chaos of sin and godlessness, you have order through these laws. And I thought that was pretty interesting when I thought about that. In chapter 23, the only one I want to talk about here is verse 21. When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for it would be sin in you, and the Lord will surely require it of you. I have failed in this regard. I have failed big time in the past on this one, and I know that some of that guilt is upon me, I'm sure. So that's why he says, if you refrain from vowing, it would not be sin in you. So it's better that we just don't vow at all in the Lord's name, so that we will not be held accountable by using his name so flippantly. Be careful not to make vows or promises that you know you can't possibly keep. As my mother likes to say, don't start what you can't finish. So we need to be careful not to take this so lightly. The name of the Lord carries great weight on it. And if there's promises that we have made, we need to fulfill our promises. Moving on to the Psalms. This is another psalm written by the sons of Korah. And what we see here is a remembrance at the beginning of all the wonderful things that God has done for the people of Israel. God has a long list of credentials that makes him worthy of being honored and praised. And so the sons of Korah are remembering what has happened in the past, and they're hoping that since God is faithful, he is going to remain faithful through the current present troubles. They acknowledge that God is their king, and that is an important understanding because at this period of time, King David was likely the king of Israel. And even then, they understood that God was the king. 
because he is truly the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We are not to trust in anything else but God, because, like it says in verse 6, they understand that their bow is not going to save them. They can't trust in their bow, nor will their sword save them. But God rescues them from their adversaries. And that's a proper understanding. And we are not to be people of pride, right? Pride is the original sin, if you want to think of it like that. The very first sinner, in a sense, was Satan. His fall was because of pride. He thought that he could be God and that he could be like him and above him. And so, obviously, pride is not a good thing to have. There is only one time that we are allowed to boast. That is if we boast in the Lord, not us. Usually, pride comes from exalting someone or something that is not God, usually ourselves. But God is the only one that is worthy to be boasted of. And we will be giving thanks to his name forever. Amen. But then the focus shifts away from what God has done and who he is to the present troubles. They feel rejected by God. They feel like God is not caring about their plight. And so what they are doing is, in verses 17 through 22, they are appealing to God for what they have done as a collective group in maintaining righteousness, in being faithful to God's commands, and maybe as a nation they're being faithful to some degree. But the reality is, it's probably not happening. That's why God has removed his hand, because the people have not been faithful. And verse 22 shows this expression because Paul uses it in Romans. But for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And he's talking about the Christian life. There is a price to being loyal to God. There is a world around us that is at war with him. But we are not simply bystanders in this war. This very channel for this podcast is dedicated to that. We are called saints. We are called soldiers of God. We are warriors of Christ. We are not just bystanders. We are active participants in the field of spiritual battle. And the sons of Korah understand this to some degree. And that's why in verses 23 through 26, they approach God on the basis of his covenant love. They remind God to act according to how he has always acted. And there's that sense of confidence that you can see in the sons of Korah, where they know who God is, and they know that he will act. It is just painful in the present, because God has not taken care of the issue yet. But you can tell that they have faith that God will act, and that he will do it when it fits him. So in the meantime, those things tend to happen for a reason. Those trials, those difficult times, usually happen to us intentionally. Not because God likes to see us suffer, but because he is trying to test us to see if we are truly dependent upon him. It really is a form of examination, because it really shows us where our heart is in the trying times. 
If our heart is not fully invested in God, or our maturity level in the faith is not very high, then as soon as things get a little rough, we will jump ship. We will not stay with God. We will usually blame God for the problem. In fact, a sign of spiritual maturity is reflecting the character of God. God demonstrates through this psalm his steadfast, unconditional love and faithfulness to his people. And so in the same way, we need to have unconditional and faithful love and devotion to him, no matter the season of life, through the good and through the bad, for the better or for the worse. And that, I think, is what the sons of Korah are trying to illustrate to us today. For the sake of the context of the thought, I want to have us memorize two verses today. Psalm chapter 44, verses 20 and 21. I would love to separate them, but you can't. And both of those verses put together create a complete thought. If we had forgotten the name of our God, or extended our hands to a strange God, would not God find this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. And really, that last sentence right there, for he knows the secrets of the heart, is the focal point of what I'm trying to say today. God knows the secrets of your heart. There is nothing that you can hide from him. He knows everything that is going on inside you. You can hide it from other people. You can fake it till you make it. But at the end of the day, God knows what's really going on inside you. You know what's going on inside you. And if what is going on inside you is in conflict with God, then we have some repenting to do. We have some changes to make. Because if you are living in a treacherous way, if you are doing things contrary to what God is wanting you to do for your life, don't you think God knows about it? In a sense, when we don't obey God, we are forgetting his name. We are extending our hands to a strange God, and it could be anything. We all have our idols in our lives. But God knows, and sometimes he'll act to punish you or chasten you. Sometimes he lets you fall on your own sword, so to speak. But ultimately, through those hard times, he's trying to show you something. And the ultimate outcome should be that we have a dependency on God. Our inner person, the one that only you knows, should align with Scripture. And if it doesn't, we have some work to do. And with that, that's all I have for today. Thank you for listening. I'm Ryan, and we'll see you next time. Take care, and God bless you.